Well, this is one of those Sundays, you know, you get excited about. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about uh, God as a God of love. And today we get to follow that up with the whole idea of God's wrath, which not not usually the Sunday you look forward to, to be honest, as a preacher, but it's okay. Um, because we're going to wrestle with these two ideas pretty honestly this morning. And to get us going, um, I just want to put a picture on the screen. And if you have eyesight like mine and you're in the back, there's a gentleman standing on a piece of webbing um, really high up in the air. This is called slack lining. Uh, I've actually spoken about this before, but for those of you that don't know what it is, uh, it's what it looks like. It started in Yosemite by some climbers. Um, actually, as the story goes, they were, you know how there's those like chain fences across driveways and stuff? They were actually trying to balance on those as a game and figured out they could take their gear out of their climbing stuff, tie it between two trees and do the same thing. And, and this pastime for climbers turned into its own sport. And so now they actually call this high lining. The name fits, right? So you have these, there is a little tether there, by the way, in case they fall, which would be horrifying. But this is a sport all of its own. And you have uh, these people who walk these slack lines, which is called a slack line because the nature of webbing, it stretches. So unlike a tightrope that's really taut, this actually moves, which makes it pretty fun, right? It's not enough to be up in the air. It's got to move too. It requires quite a bit of balance, but this has become a sport to where even if you go over to places like Smith Rock um, and you look up at the gaps between the rocks on a lot of Saturdays, there's a couple places where if you pay attention, you might see somebody walking across a line like this. So there really are crazy people everywhere. But I, I want you to imagine something for a moment, and I'll just warn those of you who are like completely paralyzed by the idea of heights, you may not want to look at this next slide. But imagine what this is like, okay? This, this is horrifying, isn't it? Um, imagine what it takes to try to keep your balance with that view in front of you. And those kinds of... Uh, consequences right in your sight. I think this is actually a great starting point for our topic this morning because we really come to this, this wrestling match oftentimes. And, and the question is, is, how do we balance that idea we discussed last week, this idea that God is completely a God of love, with this other idea that God has wrath and judgment? How do we balance those two together? How, how could God on the one hand love us so radically in Jesus Christ, that he would offer total forgiveness and a new life that's undeserved because of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. And yet that same God is found in the scriptures doing things like destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 paints this picture literally of fire and sulfur raining down and destroying this place so that as Abraham's looking where the city had been, he describes its smoke coming up from the land like, like a furnace. How do we balance those two ideas, God's love or God's wrath and judgment? And, and it can feel like we're kind of on unsteady footing there. Sometimes we just want to ignore that question and, and just sort of walk away from it. It can feel kind of almost as hard, like we're trying to find balance between two things of great consequence and we don't want to mess up. Because on the one hand, we could fall off on the side of God's judgment and we unfortunately see examples like these people. Um, they have an interesting view of God, I would say. That's being kind. Only screaming, only fear, 
Only anger, focus on fire and brimstone and condemnation, and that's sort of the complete picture of God. You know, we're supposed to take sin seriously, and so there's these warnings. And, and yet, if we're honest, even in the fire and brimstone, there is some truth to it, right? There is an element of truth there. God hates sin. This is a, that was a warped version of it, but there is an element of truth. After his personal introduction, as Paul writes to the, the church in Rome, uh, it really begins in a jarring fashion, to be honest. If we pick up in Romans 1.18, he writes that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what follows is sort of this picture of this downward spiral of humankind's sin and rejection of God. But even saying that, the wrath of God, to many of us sounds uncomfortable. It's not the thing we want to talk to our neighbors about when we share the gospel. Let me tell you about God's wrath. That is an uncomfortable thing for many of us, if we're honest. And yet even Jesus talks about it. Jesus very clearly talks about judgment and sin. So we don't, we don't want to fall off on the side of the signs. But on the other side, we can fall off on this other side. And, you know, it's kind of like everything's just clouds and rainbows and love and sin's no big deal because God's love. And, you know, we might think of passages like in, in Matthew 27 or 22. Jesus is, is asked, what of all the Mosaic law, this religious structure that Israel lived under, all of these rules, which is most important? And Jesus responds. You may be familiar. It's really simple. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus takes it a step further. He says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says that all of the religious law basically breaks down to something that sounds really easy to swallow, right? Love God. With all you are, love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of like the song says, all you need is love. Right? So finding balance between these two ideas is uncomfortable and, and oftentimes very difficult for us as believers. And, and we wrestle with these questions sometimes. Like, is it almost like God's schizophrenic or this Jekyll and Hyde? Like, one moment God's loving and then the next moment, you know, God changes and there's wrath and judgment and anger? So I want to unpack these ideas together for the few moments we have this morning. I want to consider what wrath is, uh, what love is, and how these two ideas relate to each other. And what I hope you understand this morning is that this actually isn't a balancing act at all. That's a misunderstanding. So we go to probably the most famous example of God's wrath, Sodom and Gomorrah, which I mentioned earlier. In fact, if you look for, do a search on Sodom through the scriptures, it comes up again and again as a warning of what happens to wickedness. Um, these two cities, as I mentioned early, earlier, are essentially destroyed because of their gross behavior. And if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 19, there's a whole lot about it that's uncomfortable. It's icky. 
It's not a passage you like to sit in and, you know, draw illustrations of or something. It's, it's ugly. It's not, you know, I, I don't remember growing up like that flannel graph thing in Sunday school. It's, it's a gnarly story. But now your minds are wondering. But before that, before we even get to Genesis 19, Sodom's actually mentioned earlier. Um, in fact, in Genesis 13, this is what we read. This is Genesis 13, verse 12. We find that Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. And we get this little explanation. The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And so what happens before Genesis 19 is actually this weird scene where Abraham is like bartering with God. God tells him he's going to come and destroy these cities. So he's like, well, if there's 50 people there who are righteous, will, will you let it go? God says, yeah. It's like, okay, how about 45? How about 40? How about 20? How about 10? And God actually says, yeah, if there's 10 righteous people there, I'll, I'll relent. Gives you a, a sense of this was a gnarly place. This is a violent and wicked place. And so then in chapter 19, there's these gross and disturbing events. And they in themselves aren't the whole problem. They're, they're an example. They're a symptom of what's going on there, of what this place is like. And it isn't pretty. Later on, uh, in one of those mentions of Sodom, it's actually rather fascinating what Ezekiel has to say. God is, through Ezekiel, describing the sin of Sodom. And this is in Ezekiel 16 uh, verse 49, it says, Now this was the, the sin of your sister Sodom. By the way, you don't want to be told that Sodom's your sister because that means you're acting pretty poorly. In the same passage, Israel's uh, compared to, to prostitutes because of their neglect of God and, and His direction. But it says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor, and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. So it's a, it's a bigger problem than just that snapshot we have in Genesis 19. These are people who are consumed with only themselves. There's violence, there's oppression, there's injustice. And so what brought about this famous example of God's wrath on Sodom? It was people involved in, in gross things on a specific evening, certainly. But even more, it was a group of people totally unconcerned for the well-being of others. Who through violence and greed were consistently bringing harm. Now wrath is often associated with anger. Wrath is a response provoked by something not being right. Even if you think about your own anger, usually... Your anger as an emotion comes up because something's not right, and usually it's you know, directed towards the person we see as the root cause or the thing. Um, but wrath is a response to something that's wrong. And we, again, struggle with this idea because our experience of anger and wrath, if we're honest, is usually fueled by emotion and by our own wants rather than by justice. I would admit to you that most of the times I get angry, it's probably about petty things that have to do with me and what I want versus injustice, right? Most of the conflicts that we find ourselves in, the arguments we find ourselves in that get us worked up, that get us angry, often aren't about injustice. They're about what we want. 
And so when we think about anger, when we think about wrath, we think of it primarily as this sort of broken emotion. You know, you and I might get mad for reasons like somebody cutting us off or somebody taking what we wanted or getting in the way of our goals or causing us pain. And so for us, primarily, it's sort of this knee-jerk emotional response that's self-protective and focused towards us. So I think we assume that when we look at God's wrath and judgment, that like God must be ticked off bad enough that he loses his temper. But that's when the fire starts raining down, right? But the question I want to pose to you this morning is, is what if God's wrath is fueled by something different? Because I believe it is. Once you imagine family goes on vacation, dad wanders off with one of the kids, mom's sitting there, and uh, her little youngest one, two, three years old, is playing, she's relaxing in a chair, and all of a sudden she just hears blood-curdling scream. Looks up, and there's her child covered in bees, getting stung. And she runs right to her child, grabs her child, starts removing her child from, from that cloud of bees, but is just killing bees left and right, smashing them, doing everything she can to get those bees off of her child to stop further harm, right? It's not that she hates bees, but there's this raging hand, right, that's leaving this pile of, of death and little corpses, not for retribution, but because she wants to protect her child. In this example, wrath isn't fueled by a bad temper, but by love and desire for a child's well-being. I think this is closer to understanding God's wrath and judgment. Now, to understand it, I think we also need to first understand what love is and what love isn't. Uh, John writes in 1 John 4, maybe you're familiar with these words. Uh, He writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent Valentine's card. It's actually not what it says. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love isn't this hallmark special. It doesn't come in a little heart-shaped thing full of chocolates, right? God's love is expressed through protective action towards all of humankind. God's love is action. God's love is saving. That's what God's focus is on, is rescuing and redeeming his lost kids. And so God's love is expressed often by confronting what puts us in danger. When we talk about this this word sin, it's not just telling a little white lie, it's brokenness, it's misguided, me first, I don't worry about the people around me. It's doing things that harm others, even when it seems innocent. And God's love for us is so strong, His concern for our well-being is so great, that no amount of personal sacrifice is going to get in the way. We see that at the cross. And this, as we start to understand this, actually makes sense of some of the other difficult statements we find in the Bible. Another one of them is in 1 John, uh, just a chapter earlier, when he writes in verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
that's ouch, right? I've driven by somebody who is in need and not stopped. What's he getting at? Look at the context. If we go back and begin in verse 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He just defined what the love of God is. It's laying our life down for someone. Dear children, he says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Catch this. That's what God's love looks like, is actions and truth, not just pretty words. God's love towards you is expressed in action. God's love towards me is expressed through action. It's not just these sappy sentiments. It's not just a feel-good thing. It's action specifically directed towards the good and well-being of his people. And that same fierce love that led Jesus to the cross also fuels God's response towards injustice. God's wrath is not a separate competing thing from God's love, but rather it's something that comes out of his love. And that's where you know, this picture, this slack line picture, that analogy really breaks down because it's not two opposing forces on either side. It's, it's part of one thing. By the way, full disclosure, I really enjoy slack lining. But when I do it, it looks more like this. Um, you know, it's, I'm not that cool extreme guy up on the cliffs. Uh, but, but it turns out this isn't the best picture for understanding the interplay between God's love and God's wrath because it isn't these two opposing forces that need to be balanced, but rather what we fail to see so often is that a God that loves requires a God that fiercely opposes anything that would harm those he loves. If that mom didn't get up and run and beat those bees up, is she loving her kid? Right? Love requires facing into injustice, facing into that which harms those whom we love and doing something about it. And so God's wrath has to be understood in this context of God's love. We often speak of the holiness of God. That word, when it refers to people, uh, means essentially being set aside for a purpose. And that purpose consistently through Scripture, when people are set aside for a purpose, it's to, to serve God and serve people. It's to give yourself away for the good of others. When we speak of God's holiness, we're speaking of God's otherness, if you will. This mind-blowing idea that in God there is no darkness, there's no stain, there's no shortcoming, there's no imperfect intention in who God is and in what God does. God's perfect love simply cannot be separated from God's judgment. Again, if God saw his children being harmed and sat doing nothing, I would argue that would not be love. That would not be love any more than it would be for that mom to sit in her chair and listen to her kid cry and do nothing. Now, we're going to switch words here. We're going to switch to the word discipline, but it carries the same idea. Uh, this is in Hebrews 12. And, and I just want you to hear the argument about what God's love looks like here. Okay, this is in Hebrews chapter 12. He writes, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. 
referring, of course, to Jesus. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? What does it say? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. By the way, rebuke and discipline from God are those moments that feel kind of wrath-like to us, don't they? Those are those moments that feel often like judgment. He goes on, he says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And then he makes this comparison. He says, we've, we've had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. The idea being we've all had imperfect parents, some more imperfect than others. But God, in contrast, disciplines us for our good in order, why, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. What you hear in that is that God sometimes does uncomfortable things that feel like judgment and wrath for the sake of the well-being of his children. In fact, I would argue even the most extreme examples you find in Scripture of, of God's judgment It's fighting injustice. It's fighting oppression. It's responding to things that are harming his children. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life where your good required someone to act in what felt like judgment. You may not remember your childhood. It's probably full of some of those moments, right? Don't touch the hot stove, things like that. Some of you know part of my story is I made some really stupid decisions as a senior in high school and got to meet law enforcement as a result. And it felt like the end of my life. And there were ramifications. There was punishment. It was scary. But it was totally necessary for my well-being. Some of you have moments like that where you have experienced pain and consequences and even punishment and from the, this side of things, looking back, you can recognize you really needed to go through that. In fact, that difficult moment might at this point be seen clearly as something that was caring. Many of us can look back and see those moments where God didn't give us what we wanted. And maybe at the time we questioned his love. Even moments we endure difficulty, we fail to recognize perhaps that God is protecting us. But God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves because love requires it. In the same way, that same love requires that God would have wrath and and judgment towards injustice and oppression and the things that harm his children. The challenge for us is that we feel love and wrath as opposing things. Because that's kind of how we respond to life, right? Love feels a lot different when we're loving someone. When my wrath comes out, it's not pretty, right? 
And so we assume God must be the same way. It must be an either or. It must be love or wrath. When in fact this idea of God's wrath is within the bounds of God's love. It's an expression of holiness. It's an expression of a desire for something better for his children. And I think we do actually experience something like this sometimes. You know, those moments where we recognize injustice and something just turns in our gut. and we, It should not be so, right? Maybe we feel anger when we see someone mistreated or devalued because we know it isn't right. That is actually really similar to the Greek word that is translated as anger and wrath most commonly in the New Testament. If you're a Greek nerd, it's, it's orge is the word. It's this idea of not just anger, but grief mixed with longing. And that longing is for something better. It's the idea of of grief mixed with longing for something better. It's this response of a loving God towards injustice. It brings anger and grief because the longing is for something better. That's what wrath looks like. God hates sin. Because it harms us. God hates sin because it destroys. God hates injustice and oppression because they harm us. God hates greed and arrogance because it harms us. And for God to fail to hate sin would be a failure for God to love. They have to both be present. I mean, just think about for a moment the ripple effects and maybe this is unpleasant but just of our own greed in our culture how many people are affected globally because of our desire for something to be a little cheaper that's just the reality of the world we live in when you and I do things that seem innocuous and not that big of a deal, often the ripple effects are far greater than we realize. That's how sin works. That's why God hates it. That's why wrath and judgment are necessary. So question for you, and Rick, if you can put this on the screen. I just want to sit in this for a second this morning. How does it change your view of God to see God's wrath as an expression of God's perfect love versus something in opposition to it? How does that change your understanding of God? And then the other question is, if that's true, that God's wrath is actually intertwined with God's love, how might God invite you to respond to his perfect love for you this morning? You know, is it simply to recognize the depth and the magnitude of God's love for you and to receive that, to understand that what Christ did at the cross was to take our judgment, to take the effects of our sin, to give his life, to take the penalty of our wrongdoing, to be raised back to life so that he could offer us forgiveness and new life. Is This morning, maybe just receiving that is where, where you need to be. And on the other hand, for some of us, I think to respond to God's perfect love, quite honestly, is just to take our sin seriously. 
Not to be religious, not to try to, you know, level up or measure up to something or be more moral people, but to recognize that our sin hurts people. Even when we're convinced it doesn't. Even the stuff we do that nobody knows about, what we know it's wrong, is probably hurting people. God hates that because He loves His children. I wonder this morning, is it is part of responding to God's love just embracing that both those things are true? That God loves you completely in Jesus Christ and has forgiven you totally, and yet at the same time, God hates the sin that we're caught in and invites us to take it a little more seriously, to be a part of what God's doing. And one of the things I I think about as I look at this question is, in fact, someone was mentioning this to me this morning, that anger isn't the opposite of love, indifference is. And as I consider the fullness of God's perfect love, to be quite honest, I'm confronted with my indifference towards some things and my need to care more and to act. Now, James Smith, if you're new around here, our community groups which meet during the week, uh, invite you to look into being one of part of those. Those are small groups of us that get together and uh, do life together. There's a couple that meet on Sundays and one on Wednesday. In fact, are you guys meeting right after service? There's one that meets right down the hall after service. Um, we've all been going through this book called The Good and Beautiful God together because our desire is to grow in Christ. Um, in that book, James Smith uh, states that holiness is essential, essentially wholeness. That holiness is a life that works like it's supposed to. Conversely, sin is dysfunction and sickness. And God's calling us to wholeness. Now, you may know we've been doing these sort of soul training exercises each week as a part of uh, going through this as a group, and I just want to let you know what we're doing this week uh, and how it's connected to what we're talking about. One of our biggest challenges is hurry and busyness. Part of why that's a challenge is it doesn't allow us time to really recognize the things going on in us and around us and to care about them the way we should or to respond to them in a healthy manner. I am absolutely convinced that one of the best things you and I can do for our spiritual life is to just stop being in a hurry and to create some space. And that's right in lines with what we're doing this week. Uh, he refers to it as creating margin. You think about a paper, the white space, it's not all full. Creating margin in our life, slowing down, not going after whatever it is we're chasing so that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus rather than running off all the time. So here's here's the challenge this week. It's just to make some space in your day, intentionally to sit and to reflect on God's love for you and the life He's calling you to. That might look like getting up a little bit earlier to have some silence before you rush off. That might mean turning the radio off in the car, which is a beautiful thing anyways, by the way. That silence is a good thing. It might mean turning off some of the stuff that we entertain ourselves at night just to create some space to be present with God. 
It might mean making some space in our schedules so that we have the capacity to be interrupted by the needs of people around us so we can love them. But that's our, our challenge this week is simply to make space. And part of why that's so critical for us is to allow these ideas we've been discussing both last week and this week to really begin to sink in because God's love is so very different than what we've experienced. It doesn't fail, and yet it also has this justice aspect to it that's required. And it takes stopping and stillness and prayer to begin to see the world around us through that lens rather than the lens that's focused on us and what we want or our tribe or whatever it is. So I would encourage you this week, be intentional in carving some time out. Start with something that is actually doable. Don't start with, you know, I'm going to take a whole Friday, unless you can take a whole Friday. But make some space where it can be made for the purpose of just sitting in and considering God's love for you and God's call to us to be a part of his love and justice. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough that you discipline us. Thank you that you love your children enough that you hate injustice. Help us to hate injustice too. Help us to see it for what it is. In our communities, in our own homes, in our workplaces, at our schools. Help us to love people enough that we would step into those places to bring peace. God, protect us from indifference. Help us to understand your passion for your children, your love for us, that we could rest in it, but Father, also that we could be active participants with it, that we might look more like Jesus, that we might reflect your goodness and your perfect love. We ask in Christ's name, amen.